Well, good morning. If you'll join me, we'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. I have fought the stomach bug in the last 72 hours, so this is going to be the most physically exerting thing I've done, but uh, God's going to get us through it. So if you'll join me in a word of prayer that I just have the stamina and uh, our hearts be open. So Father God, we just come before you, and God, I just pray, just give me energy to preach your word. God, let it be your word that is proclaimed this morning. And God, let us have hearts that are open to receive what you have to say. God, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And God, may we just be found faithful. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So I saw this stat recently this past week, and it said that you are bombarded with on some occasions 8,000 different advertisements a day. That as you're driving and you're seeing all these billboards and you're seeing slogans and you're scrolling, you are just getting blasted with advertisement after advertisement. So we're going to play a game and see how well you know the slogans for some of these companies. And I chose some that they have a common theme in them as well. So at the end, we'll also see if you can figure out what is the common theme that all of these are trying to advertise to you. So the first one, the slogan is, a better life, a better world. Do you know what company has that as their slogan? It is Panasonic. Panasonic, their slogan is, a better life, a better world. Apparently, they are not getting across your eyes, so they need to try harder. All right, maybe this one, a better way forward. A better way forward. That one is the mushroom guy, marshmallow guy, Michelin man. Michelin man tires a better way forward. All right, we're 0 for 2 apparently. This one I believe you're going to get though. Be all that you can be in the, yeah, you guys got that one. That one is the United States Army. All right, some people might get this one. Expect more pay less. And it is not pay less shoe store. I'll let you know that because that's where my mind kind of went to right away. Not Walmart, their rival. Target. Yep, that one is Target. Three more. Life's good. Yes, it is. Life's good. This is LG. The LG Life's Good Corporation. Maybe you'll get this one. This is a little more popular one. Life tastes good. Not only is life good, it tastes pretty good as well. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Life tastes good. And then our last one, maybe we can pass with like 20%. Never stop improving. Never stop improving. Lowe's. That is the Lowe's Home Improvement Store. See, now that you see them, you can kind of like, oh, maybe that makes sense. Uh, apparently, you guys need to look at more advertisements or not because you're doing great by not being uh, just totally involved in advertisements. But there is one thing that each one of those advertisements kind of tried promising or telling you about. Did you catch what it was? It was all along the lines of a better life. 
life tastes good, not quite better, but, you know, improve yourself. It was all about pushing you to be better. Because think of that. That is what the world wants, especially our culture. I mean, think of the Google searches that you can have of the best places to eat in Joplin. The best way to lose weight, I just lost five pounds in the last three days. If you want it, I'll share a drink with you, and you can have my plan. <laughs> it's miserable, but it works. Um, you know, the, the best place to go for a walk, the best, we're always looking for what is the best. How can I improve in this area? No company has a slogan that says, come to us, we're average. Come to us, and you know what? You'll get what you get. We're not guaranteeing anything great, but we do what we do. Like, that's not really going to sell. Imagine if the United States Army hit this slogan, be mediocre in the Army. And it's like, man, how many recruits would they get coming to them? Not near that many, because people, they hear, I want to be all that I can be. I want to be something great. I don't want to just settle for average. I want to be that greatest generation that lived. I want to be in the rankings of them. But the sad thing is, is that there actually is this movement coming up among the generations of, you know what, mediocre's fine. I'm okay getting average grades. I'm not going to apply myself really hard. I'm okay just working that average job that doesn't really require a lot of me. And if I don't like it, I'm going to leave. I'm okay not pushing myself. Because here's the problem. Pushing yourself requires effort. And just screeching by, skating by, that's fine. As long as it doesn't require too much of me. And we're seeing that come into society and into culture. You look at people and it's like, man, there are so many places that are saying for hire, but yet nobody wants to work. And, and that's not a knock on anybody necessarily. Culture's going to do what culture's going to do. Where it becomes a problem is when that mentality works its way here, into the church. And again, when I say into the church, I don't mean what we do Sunday morning. I mean who we are, because again, you are the body of Christ. You collectively make up the church, and we cannot have a mentality of, I'm okay with average. I'm okay with just skating by. Let's just do what we do. Let's not put in a lot of effort. Let's just call it what it is, and we'll be happy. The church is not called to be average. God has called us to be a part of something amazing and something great. But here's the problem that we have, in America especially. We're going 100 miles an hour Monday through Saturday. We are just running full blast. You look at your schedule and it's like, man, I might be able to sneak in something here. Maybe a millisecond there. But by the time it comes to that last day of the week, I'm exhausted. So I'm, I'm, I don't have any more time for being a part of the church. I can go to a service, but don't call me to be a part of something more. Because that's too much. I have ran 100 miles an hour and I'm exhausted. So I just need that space to be a part of nothing. And so the church, being the church, gets put on the back burner. And so it becomes something we do. It becomes this, Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, maybe Wednesday. Maybe you squeak something else in there. It's not who we are because we're too tired. And so we settle for average in the area that God is calling for us to be exceptional. 
Because Jesus tells us we are the church. And Jesus tells us what the church is going to be in Matthew 16, 18. He says that on this, this rock, on this statement, I will build my church, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, I'm going to build my church on that. But imagine if Jesus said it this way. On this rock, I will build my church, and it'll be this place that you can go, and you'll be bored, and you'll have no purpose, and it won't really have any impact at all. It's going to be pretty average. You should join. I mean, imagine if you were, like, becoming a part of a gym, and you're like, you know what, this year I want to get in shape, and this gym said, come to us, and we'll help you slack off more. And you're like, okay, not quite what I want to be a part of. Actually, that sounds pretty good. I'm going. Like, that's the American dream there in a gym. But that's what the church has been gradually growing into. We have been having less and less of an impact because I believe the church is becoming comfortable with being average. When in fact, what Jesus told us, and you saw it on the screen, Jesus called us to be the church. And he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the question is, are we being an average church? Not only are we being an average church, are we contributing, are you, because again, you make up the church, contributing and okay with us just being average. What, what do I mean when I say average? An average church is fine with their attendance. I know it's not about numbers, but it's like, you know what? We can spatial distance. Nobody's taking my seat. I get to sit comfortably where I'm at. I'm okay with the attendance that we have. I don't want to grow because growth comes with pain, and I'm comfortable where we're at. So let's not, let's not push ourselves beyond that. An average church is okay with their current situation. An average church is content with everything staying the way that it is as long as it's beneficial to you. As long as you don't want it to change. That's how an average church is going to be. Because the most important thing in an average church is answering the question, am I happy? Am I getting what I want out of this? Am I receiving things? An average church cares only about myself. I'm the center of the church. That's an average church. An average church is perfectly content with coming, putting a check in the plate, a butt in the seat, and hearing a message that's not going to stretch you too far, and if you insult me, or I'll try not to insult you, if you offend me, or you say something I don't really like, then I'll go find a church that does, because I don't want to be stretched too far. That is what my definition of an average church looks like, and that's not what I want to be. That's not what God is calling us to be. I truly believe because we are his body located here that I truly believe God is calling us to be something great because he said, I'm going to build my church on this statement and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter one this morning and Paul is going to show us nine attributes or I believe nine aspirations or marks of a healthy church, of a church that is seeking after God. 
So we're going to start with verse 1 through 8 of Colossians chapter 1. Where Paul says, Paul, he opens up with a greeting by saying who the author is, who the audience is, and then he gives a blessing. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. There's your authors. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then what Paul is going to do is what he usually does. He goes in and he says, hey, let me tell you how I'm grateful for you. Let me tell you what you are doing well. And so he does that. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us the love in the Spirit. Your love in the Spirit. And so Paul, he introduces himself, he says, this is who I'm writing to, and then right away he says, this is what I'm thankful for. And in that, he says, I'm thankful that you guys are a healthy church in this aspect. He says, I am thankful for your love of God, for your faith in Christ. He says that in verse 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So right there we see the first two marks of a healthy church. First off, you have a faith in Christ. He says that, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A healthy church, obviously, if we are a church at all, we believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is a healthy church. That is part of a healthy church. Having a faith in Jesus. But he goes on to say, and a love for the saints. Jesus, while he was walking on the earth, he had this man come up to him who was trying to trick him. And so he asked him, good teacher, what is the most important commandment? And so Jesus turns it on him and says, what do the law and the prophets say? So the man responds in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 38. He says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So right there, Jesus is saying that to be a healthy church, you got to love God more than anything. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, you have to have a faith in Jesus and you have to love him with everything that you are. To be a healthy church, the priority has to be set straight. Number one, God is on top. He is Lord. He is King. He is ruler. We live for him. At the foremost of everything we do, we love God. And we live for him out of that. The driving factor behind everything we do is our love for him. Our lives for him. And from that comes our desire to live for him in everything. The heartbeat of the church should be the heartbeat of God. Meaning, 
you could say that vice versa. The heartbeat of God should be the heartbeat of the church. That what God longs for, what God desires, what God's heart hurts for, the church's heart should hurt for. The church's heart should long for. It should weep over what God weeps over. It should toil over, in a sense, what God's heart toils over. And that's the second part. So to be a healthy church, you have a love for God, but you cannot forget the second part. A love for the fellow brothers, a love for the saints. Paul thanks them that they have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they have a love for the fellow saints. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, a second is like it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Sorry, that's third. I just read that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments, the whole law and prophets depend. So it's not only, well, we love God, we got that part down great, but we don't care about anybody else. It's no, our heart has to be for the heart of God. And the heart of God is for people. That's actually what Jesus, when he's writing through John in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he's saying, you guys do well. You're holding to firm doctrine. You guys are making sure false teachers aren't coming in. But there's one thing I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. And scholars debate whether is that a love for God or a love for others. They're going to go almost hand in hand. That as you let go of a love for God, you're going to let go of a love for others. And as you let go of a love for others, soon you're going to let go of a love for God. Because your, your heart is not going to be in line with God's heart. If you don't agree with me, check out 1 John. Where, G, where John tells us, beloved, we ought to love one another. This is how you know that you love God. If you love one another. That the test of how much I love God is how well am I loving one another. To be a healthy church, yes, we love God, but we cannot let go of other people. And that's what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, or sorry, verse 17. When Jesus, they're, they're upset about Jesus loving people. And so Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to seek, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Later on, Jesus goes on to say, I came to seek and save the lost. The heart of Jesus is for lost and broken people. That we cannot become so inwardly focused that we let go of everybody out there. I have my salvation, damn you all to hell. It's pretty much what we say when we say we don't care about people out there. That we don't have a desire to, as the Great Commission tells us, go and make disciples of all nations. That we must actually go. That if all we do is say, hey, people, you know what? We meet here Sunday mornings. Y'all should join us. Yes, they should. But how are they going to know unless they are sent? Unless somebody, how, that was wrong. How are they going to know unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? God is sending us out to bring people in. Because his heart is for hurting and broken people. And so therefore the heart of his church is for hurting and broken people. 
that we go to the people, that we go and share the gospel. You see, here's the thing. We cannot be so, become so inwardly focused that we just don't care about anybody out there. But we can't become so outwardly focused that we just, you know, start like downplaying and watering the gospel. And we start doing like, hey, what's it going to take to get people here? How about we just make it all fun, no truth? It's like, no, because that's the third part of a healthy church. It's a dependence on the gospel of Jesus, that we do not let go of the gospel of Jesus no matter what. No matter what culture says, no matter what your friends say, no matter what I hopefully never say, but might someday, if I ever get crazy, say, we hold firm to the gospel of Jesus. Because Paul continued on with that in verse 3. Or he goes on. Verse 3, he said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you had for all the saints, because of the hope that was laid up in you, for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You heard about this through the gospel. Your, your hope came from the gospel. And he says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. They heard the gospel and then Paul says, not only did you hear it, it is growing in you. You don't say, yeah, I know the gospel. You desire the gospel. You crave the gospel. You hold on to the gospel with everything that you have. That at the core of everything that we do, not just collectively, individually, the gospel is the center of it. The gospel of Jesus drives us. And I'm not saying that you're out on the street corner screaming out the gospel. If that's what God calls you to do, do it. But what I'm saying is that the motive behind everything you do is gospel-oriented. That as Paul tells us in Colossians, that he says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men. That he says in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it as for the Lord. That everything we do is driven by the gospel. That we cannot let go of the message of the cross. That we hold firm to it more than anything. Because the world is going to try and tell us that it's crazy. The world is going to try and tell it because there are a lot of churches out there that are doing it. That are saying, let go of the gospel. And then you'll start attracting more people. Let go of the gospel. Water it down because it's offensive, because it's outdated, because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Let go a little bit. And what God says is no. You hold firm to the gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it brings life to us who are being saved by it. So we hold firm to the gospel and we don't let it go no matter what. It is that, that lifeline that you're holding on to, that you got a thousand foot drop below you and you got one rope that you're holding on to and you see people lowering and it's on like 20 pound test weight and they're lowering like $20,000 worth of gold. And you're like, ugh, it's shiny. I'm not letting go of what I have because if I let this go, I die. I mean, yeah, I could hold on to that, but it's gonna snap and I'll drop to my death. 
and I can enjoy it as I fall miserably. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to cling to what brings me life. I'm going to hold firm to the gospel. So that's what a healthy church does. It has faith in Jesus. It has a love for people. It holds firm to the gospel no matter what. And then Paul goes on in verse 9, and he continues on with a prayer that is my prayer for us, and I believe it should be a prayer for all churches that we have this mindset. He says, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we see five different things in that section that Paul is saying, this is what I pray the church become because th these are the marks of a healthy church. First off, he prays in verse nine that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. This is a desire to never be satisfied, but to constantly grow in your relationship with God. It's God's prayer that his word become the bread that you eat every day. That as Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so often instead, the word is that dessert that if we're not full already, we might have, but we can live without. But instead, it's like, no, I need God's word. I want to be filled with his knowledge. I want to constantly crave his word and his truth. I want to have a heart for him. So first off, Paul's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of God. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says that you would live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. That your life would be holy. That is not just how you behave when you're here Sunday, but that it's how you're living when you're among the world. That you would be lights in darkness, that the light of Jesus would shine through you. That when people look at you, they see something different. That when they hear the way you talk, they hear something different. That when they, they, if they could look at your phone, they would see that you scroll differently. That you are not letting anything perverse before your eyes, but that you are setting yourself apart and living holy for God. That your life 24-7 is in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not about being a cultural Christian. A cultural Christian is pretty much one who says, give God these areas. Give him just 10% of your money. Give him just an hour of your week. Give him just five minutes of your day. Whereas Jesus is saying, I want your whole life. That is, Jesus tells us in Luke 9, 23, we take up our cross daily. We die to ourselves every single day. We take up our cross daily, and we follow after him. And then Paul goes on to say, when you do that, you will bear good fruit. He says that you live a life worthy 
of the calling of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, the Christian life is one that the world should see. Your life should be looked at by people. So often culture right now has made it to where the Christian life is, hey, it's just something I do among myself. We have our quiet time. That's good. I'm not knocking on that. We, you know, have verses that we hold on to where it's like, well, when you give, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. And so I don't talk about how much I give. Admirable. That my act should be done in secret. Bible does say that. And I'm not going to neglect what the Bible is saying. But what I believe the Bible is talking about is intention. Let the deeds of your heart be done for the glory of Jesus. Because Jesus tells us, let your deeds be seen by men. He says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Do you see the metaphor here? You don't receive the gospel of Jesus and say, all right, I'm going to hide this in my heart and I'm not going to let it shine. I'm not going to let people display it. You know, the little kid song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. But instead, we're like, nah, let's hide it. It's for me. I'll talk about it in the right circles, but I'm, I'm not going to live too Christianese. That would be bad. Where Jesus is saying, no, you don't light a lamp and then hide it. You put it on a lampstand so that it can give light to all who are in a house. And then he brings it home. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good deeds. The life you live should be noticeable to other people so that they may see your good deeds. But the motive is this, and glorify your father who is in heaven. So the reason that we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing is so that we're not prideful and arrogant. We don't fast by distorting our faces so that everybody can see because we're not seeking the attention. We're trying to give all the glory to God. So we live lives that are on display so that they may see and give glory to God. Because Jesus goes on to say, beware of false prophets who are going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. You'll recognize them by how they live their life. They might say things, but the way they live their life 24-7, that's how you'll see them. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Ask Brenda, she knows. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Because we're on display. People are looking at how Christians live. Because, man, they, the, the world and the culture is trying to poke holes in our belief system. They're trying to, to look at you because they're going to judge a lot about Christ by how you live your life before they judge it by what the Bible says. They're going to judge a lot about what we do when we claim to be the church by how you live your life. 
before they come in here and try to experience these gatherings. Paul tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we are his representatives. We live public lives. It's more than making a game-winning basket and saying, I just want to thank God right now, and then going out and having eight different women pregnant in eight different cities. You said one thing, your life is saying a completely different. It is about living a life for God, bearing good fruit in everything that you do. And then Paul goes on, and he says in verse 9 through 11, he says, he continues on, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, verse 11, being strengthened with all power. Because here's the thing, the Christian walk is difficult. It's hard to be under a microscope. It's hard to have the world looking at you. And, and here's the thing that I've noticed in my lifetime as people find out that I'm a Christian and, and I, I try living my life pleasing to God. And so as I'm in secular work environments, people realize he doesn't talk like us. And so then they're like, what can we do to make him mad? And they push those limits and it's hard. Because it's like, God, let me be an example here. Let me have patience. Let me be your light. It's hard. Your life is going to be hard. C.S. Lewis said, if anybody is looking for a religion to make them comfortable, I definitely don't recommend Christianity. Because it's going to push limits. Jesus tells us this is how uncomfortable it will make you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people falsely say evil things against you because of me when they insult you, when they revile you because of me. Blessed are you when you suffer for doing what is good. It's hard. And so what a healthy church does is it doesn't rely on its own abilities and power. It depends solely on God. You know what it's called when you rely on your own abilities and power? Pride. Don't worry, God. I got this. I'll see you next Sunday. I got Monday through Friday, might have needed you a couple seconds there, but everything else I can handle. That's pride. The message of the cross reveals to us, oh, there is nothing we could do. We need Jesus. We need the message of the cross now, and an hour from now, and 10 years from now. We will always need to be dependent on the cross. And the way the world likes to say it is, isn't the cross a crutch? Man, it's not a crutch. It's like the wheelchair. I'm not walking without it. To have it be like a crutch is like I can so somewhat fully support myself. I can't. The minute I do, I collapse. I totally am dependent on the cross. It is the life-saving life support that I am on that without it, my life ceases to exist. So we depend on the cross completely. And then the last thing that Paul tells us is he says, have an attitude of gratitude. Be grateful. Verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, we live in a culture that's not one full of gratitude, but instead one of entitlement. Give me, I deserve, that's for me. It's so unfair that you have. 
That can easily creep into the church, so much so that Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. That we should have this gratitude among us, that Christians should be the most grateful people that exist. Because we realize everything we have is a gift from God. Nothing we have, we deserve. The very breath that I'm breathing, I don't even deserve. But yet God has given it to me. And so therefore we should have gratefulness that God's people should be the most grateful people that exist. Especially when we realize exactly what it is that God has done. And that's how Paul wrapped it up. In verse 13 through 14, he says, Because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you grasp that, everything is gratefulness. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm tired of 10 degree weather. But I have an eternity in paradise that I get to look forward to. Praise God for that. I'm tired of this job that doesn't appreciate me, but I have a father who has an unconditional love for me even when I am so ungrateful to him. Like when you twist the way you look at it and you filter it through the gospel of what Jesus has done, man, you can turn any circumstance into one of rejoicing. Paul did it in Philippians. The entire letter is Paul being in prison wrongfully accused because he loves God and is proclaiming Jesus, and he says, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always so much so, I'll say it again, rejoice. I am happy. I can, well, maybe not happy, but I am joyful. I can find joy in all things. I have found what it is to be content in all circumstances because of through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things. He has an attitude of gratitude. So to be a healthy church, to be a healthy church, you are faithful to Christ. You have a faith in him. You have a love for others. You grow in the gospel. You grow in your knowledge of God. You live for God. You're strengthened by God. And you're grateful to God in all circumstances. And the reason that we strive, like, uh, why should we try to be the best church that we can be? Because it's way easier to be average. But when we understand what Jesus did, that's when we realize this is why we are called to something so much more. He's, Paul tells us in verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, it's because of who Jesus is, that he is before all things, all things are through him, he is the head of all things, and it is through him we were reconciled to God. 
And therefore, we are somebody new. We don't live in the way that we used to. We now live for him because Paul goes on to say, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why should we be an excellent church? Why should we strive in everything we do to be these things? Because of who we are through what Jesus has done for us. We, therefore, do everything we can for him 24-7. Because God didn't call for us to be average. God called for us to be his church. In which he said in Matthew 16, 18, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father God, it's all because of you. And so God, we are so grateful for what you have done. And God, may we never lose sight of what it is that you're calling us to be and who it is that you're calling us to be. God, as the world is becoming okay with being complacent and average, may we constantly strive for excellence in your name. So God, we need you to help us because as we saw, being dependent on your strength is what is needed. So God, I just pray that we do that, that we just give everything over to you and we be your people. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen.